Good morning. Pastor Mike is uh, on vacation with his family this week, and so it is my privilege to be able to, uh, to share with you this morning. So if you will, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and this morning our text will be verses 1 through 10. I said it's, it's my privilege to share with you. It's also a, a burden to, uh, to share with you. Um, it is something that uh, is a... Uh, it's something that I, I take seriously to be able to open the word with you and, and uh, feel a great burden to be able to communicate that accurately and clearly with you. And uh, fortunately, I trust that God's word is, is powerful enough to, uh, to communicate uh, despite of any um, insufficiencies in my own abilities. But um, I'm excited about what God has, uh, has laid on my heart for, um, for, for me this morning as well as what I can share with you. Um, if you would, please stand as we read Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 10. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." But God, being rich in, him, in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And God, we just come before you and and look at your word, God, and we pray that you would speak powerfully to us, God, that your word would be clear, and uh, God, that you would even use your word as a mirror before us, that we would see ourselves and understand ourselves better, and as a result, know and love and respond to you in a better way. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1875, British poet by the name of William Henley wrote a short poem called Invictus, which means unconquerable. And I'd like to read the first and last stanzas of the poem this morning. It goes as follows. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know, this, uh, this poem captures much, even though it was written in 1875, it captures much of, I think, Amer- American culture today, doesn't it? It captures what we might call the American spirit. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I control my destiny. It, it reflects self-reliance and self-determinism. It reflects the, uh, the independent, rugged, American, pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of a spirit, doesn't it? But this thinking is self-delusional. It's misleading. The reality is that we have control over our lives and our destinies, but all of our self-reliance can only lead to one place, hell, eternal death. This lack of self-awareness can only lead us to self-destruction. And to have any hope in this life, 
We must know ourselves. We have to understand our condition, understand where we're at. John Calvin wrote, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now the interesting thing is is that for us to actually know God, we must first have a good understanding of ourselves and know ourselves. And so that's what I'd like to look at this morning here as we come to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, first uh, to understand ourselves better and allow God's word to be a mirror before us and to reflect the condition of, of our lives and of our hearts. So we come here to Ephesians 2 and it says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not a real hopeful way to begin, is it? It says you were dead. You are a sinner and you are dead. It describes the condition of every individual. If you're a Christian, this describes your past. If you're not a Christian, this describes your present. If you think that you're a Christian, but you're really not, then this still describes your present situation. This is where you are right now, dead. So for all of us, it's important that we understand this condition that we're in. What it means to be dead, whether it's in our past condition, we need to understand what that meant for us in the past. Or if it's our present condition, we certainly need to understand what that means for us right now. But note, this doesn't mean physically dead. Obviously, we're sitting here today. We're moving around. Even as we look at this passage, it says in verse 2, For you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You walked. Verse 3, it says, You lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging in the desires. So you lived in the lusts and indulged in desires and you walked. This is not a physical death that we're talking about. Obviously, there's, uh, there's something different that's being discussed here. So what is this death that Paul is talking about? Well, in Ephesians 4.18 it says that man is excluded or alienated from the life of God. So this deadness is not a physical death, but it's talking about a spiritual death. The Bible does talk about different categories of dead. Jesus says in Matthew eight twenty two, he says, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead, he's saying, bury the physically dead. So there's categories of dead in the Bible. So we're talking here about spiritual death. Well, what is, what is spiritual death? What does this mean? Well, physical death, what, is, what does that mean? That's, physical death is, is a complete inability to respond to any kind of stimulus. When you're physically dead, you cannot respond. You could walk up to a dead person and scream in their face, and they're not going to respond in any way, are they? Physical death means you cannot react. And spiritual death is the same thing. All of God's love and riches and blessing cannot cause a single response in the spiritual dead. There's no capacity to respond at all to God. The dead can love or even lust for all the wrong things, but the spiritually dead cannot love the right things. So we have here is a case of the walking dead. John Eady said that the spiritual dead are spiritual zombies because they don't know that they are dead, yet they're still going through the motions. It's death walking. Verse 1 here in Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Now you may have heard, what does the word sin mean? uh, You've probably heard this if you've been around in church very long. The word for sin means to miss the target or to miss the mark, right? So sin is a failure to hit God's target. Well, what's God's target? Do you ever think about that? What, What exactly is God's target for us? Romans says, for all have sinned and come short of, what? The glory of God. 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's God's target. That's what we miss. When we sin, we fall short of hitting the target, which is God's glory. So what we understand from this is that sin has much more to do with what we don't do than what we do do. We think of sin as doing the wrong things, but ultimately sin is not doing the right thing, not giving God glory. So we keep this understanding of sin in mind as we, uh, as we um, go through this this morning, that sin, by definition, is not hitting the target, and the target is God's glory. That's what we miss. So what do the walking dead do? They're not glorifying God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They fail to glorify God. And let's look at uh, verses 2 and 3, give us a little bit further of a picture of this. It says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then it says that we too formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's what the walking dead do. They're indulging in the, in the desires of their own flesh and of their own mind. They're living according to the course of the power of this world, of the, the prince of the power of this world. John 3.19 and 20 um, sheds a little further light on this. Uh, John, uh, actually, Jesus speaking in this says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The dead hate the light. They don't want to come to the light and have their, their sins exposed. So they don't have any inclination towards God at all. The dead, when we're dead, we're not neutral towards God. We resist the light. We resist the truth. This is not just a, a neutral position, but it's an it's a active resistance of God. We don't want to confront it because ultimately it means we can't be the kings of our own lives, doesn't it? We don't want to submit to God's authority, so we, we hate the light. We stay away from the light. We love the darkness where we can hide. And then in verse 2 here in Ephesians, it says, We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. We're walking according to his plans, according to what he wants us to do, according to the thoughts and the intentions of this world, to, to a world of sin. That's what we're caught up in. It's total depravity. It's not that we can't do good things. In Luke chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So sinners can do good. You can do good things. But remember what ultimate goodness is. Ultimate goodness is giving glory to God. You can't glorify God when you're dead. You can't respond to spiritual truth. You're caught up in yourself, your desires, your passions. Philippians 2 says, For they all seek after their own interests not those of Christ Jesus. That's what, we, that's, that's what our heart's bent is, towards ourselves, not towards God, not towards Jesus. Look over at, uh, at Ephesians 4.18. We'll look at that in, in a little more detail. It says, You no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, alienated from the life of God. Now why? It says, Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the ignorance. So they're excluded from God because of their ignorance, right? They just don't know. Is that, the, is that the answer? No, we keep reading. And it says that they're excluded because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. The problem that the dead have, the problem that, that we have when we're not in Christ is a heart problem. It's because of the hardness of our heart. It's not simply ignorance. It's not just that we don't know things. It's that our heart doesn't want to know. It's a heart condition. Romans 1 
says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They suppressed the truth. They knew God. They didn't honor him. So they're without excuse. And their foolish hearts are darkened. Their hard heart resists the truth. This means that their ignorance is a guilty ignorance. And then we see here in Ephesians, back in Ephesians chapter 2, we see at the end of verse 3 it says that we are by nature children of wrath. That's our nature. You know, there's a, um, a tendency that we have is that we want to put the blame always elsewhere and, and, and uh, blame somebody else, blame our conditions, our environment, blame our family, blame, blame our upbringing, blame our circumstances of life, and that's why we've, we, have, we have problems. And You know what this is saying? By, we're, we're by nature children of, of wrath. It's in our nature. That means that we are our own worst problem. I am my own Worst problem. The problem is with me. I can't blame it anywhere else. I am by nature a child of wrath. I am suited for God's wrath. God calls us to perfection. Jesus said, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what glorifies God and we fall short of that. We are by nature children of wrath. David wrote in Psalm 51, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. We came into the world in sin. It is our nature and it's God's perfect justice that sin results in a penalty and this penalty is delivered by God's righteous and holy wrath and when that day comes there's nothing we can say to God about it it is perfect and right and just for him to enact his wrath against our sin so we fail to glorify God and as a result we're children of wrath we're the target of God's wrath so we're in trouble dead people have no ability to respond to God in any way we're hopelessly and helplessly lost it's impossible to save ourselves you know, we don't like to hear this. It grates against us, doesn't it? You know, we like to, even as Christians, we like to think that, you know, I was smart enough or I was wise enough or maybe even I was brave enough to make that decision to follow Jesus. We want to we put that back on ourselves that somehow we have some of the credit to make that right decision. But, you know, Romans 3.11 says that there is none who seeks for God. Literally, there are no God seekers. There's no one that seeks after God. We can't even say, oh, I was seeking God. And the, no, there, it says there are no God seekers. Let's understand this just a little bit further. In John chapter 12, verse 38, um, it says, John writes, But though he, Jesus, had performed so many signs before him, yet they were not believing in him. Jesus had performed all these signs and miracles, and, and they still were not believing. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe says they could not believe. God had not opened the eyes of their heart. It was impossible for them to believe. That doesn't go down real well, does it? We have a hard time swallowing that. Um, but this word for cannot, when it says they, they could not believe, or they cannot believe, the word is the Greek word adunato. It means does not have the power or it's impossible. Mark Dever observes this word has been used um, throughout the New Testament, Matthew 17, 20. It says, nothing shall be impossible for you. Mark 10, 27, with men it is impossible. Luke 1, 37, nothing will be impossible with God. 
In Acts 14.8, it describes a lame man as having a dunato feet. Feet that were, it was impossible for them to walk, for them to, to hold you up. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. This is the same word when it says they could not believe. It was impossible for them to believe. When we're dead, we do not have the power to believe, to respond to God. But 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So to a natural person, he's unable to understand the things of God. It's impossible. But it's not just that he can't understand. It's that his heart hates the gospel. He does not like the authority of God. His heart, his heart hates it, so his mind declares it stupid. His mind declares it foolishness. So this is, this is not a physical cannot. It's not, not like that God is holding anybody back and saying, I'm not allowing you to believe. It's not a physical cannot. This is a moral cannot that, that our, our minds so hate the gospel when we're dead that we want nothing to do with it. And so therefore it's impossible for us to respond to the gospel. There's no desire to doing it. It's our pride, our self-reliance, our self-focusedness. It's the desire to be God of our own lives. It makes it impossible for us to respond to the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when you're dead, before you're saved, you cannot please God. You can't even make the choice to believe because that would be pleasing to God, wouldn't it? And it says, when you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. There's nothing you can do to please God. So that's our condition. We are dead in our sins. We have no ability to even recognize that we're dead. We are completely, hopelessly, utterly lost and helpless. And then we encounter God's sovereign love here in verse 4. It says in Ephesians 2.4, But God. So the transition here is in verse 1. It says, And you... Here's your condition. But then God enters the picture. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. But God, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together. He made us alive. There's nothing that we did that made us come to life. Jesus called Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus had no ability to raise himself back up from the dead until Jesus called him, right? Jesus called him back from the dead. And once Jesus called him, do you think Lazarus had the option of saying, "Uh, you know what, I think I'm kind of liking this dead thing. I'm going to stay dead for a while longer. No, Jesus called, Lazarus came forth. In the same way, Jesus calls us from the dead. And we respond. He makes us alive. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, we must be born again. You know, think about a baby being born. Uh, My sister just had a baby this week. And Rebecca was born. And uh, you think about what, what control, what involvement did Rebecca have in being born and determining when she'd be born or who her parents would be or where she'd be born or even whether she would be born or ever be conceived. She had no control over any of that. And in the same way, us being born again, in a spiritual sense, we don't have any control over that. And why does God save us? It says in in verse uh, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It's because of God's great love for us that he causes us to come alive. He doesn't look around and say, oh, that guy, he looks like he's doing pretty good. I think I'll pick him. Let's just, out of God's love, he chooses 
to save. Romans 9.16 says it doesn't depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Our salvation is totally, completely dependent on God. It has nothing to do with us. John MacArthur puts it this way. God reaches out to those of us who are dead in sin, we who are the most the vilest, most sinful, godless, ungrateful, unworthy, unholy, destitute, degraded, depraved humans, walking around engulfed in sins and trespasses, serving the prince of the power of a system of ideology that drowns us, and we are rightfully targets of God's wrath, and it is to us that he comes and pours out his love. That's God. You see, we haven't just sinned against God's law by doing wrong things. We've sinned against God's love. We've rebelled against God's love. We've shaken our fist to him and we've trampled on his love. He's called us and he's chosen us. We didn't choose him. We were dead and we were unable to respond. We were in rebellion against his love and yet he calls us out of that and he took us who were dead and made us alive. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He caused us to be born again, and he's given us this undefiled, perfect gift that will never fade. But it goes further. He doesn't just save us. He doesn't just call us back from the dead. But he changes us. Think about it. Living people look different than dead people, don't they? There's a difference between somebody who's alive and somebody who's dead. God changes us when he makes us alive. We may be walking around in a dead world, but he's made us alive. Look at verse 6 and 7 of Ephesians 2. It says that he's made us alive together in Christ at the end of verse 5. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God pours out his grace on us over and over for all of eternity. That's what he wants to do. Think of all the blessings that God has given to you in your life here and that's what God wants to do that infinite times more for all of eternity. Ephesians 3 talks about God's God's plan that he created all things to fulfill his eternal purpose of showing a redeemed creation to all of heaven and then all of heaven responds then and glorifies God as the result. In other words, God wants to redeem dead people, bring them to life, perfect them, glorify them and then hold them up to the angels and say, look at what I have done. Look at what a great, loving, awesome, wonderful God I am and all of heaven, all of creation then responds and glorifies God and worships him as as a result. That's his eternal purpose. Ephesians 2.12 says, We who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live. Why? For the praise of his glory. That's our purpose. We live in a way that ultimately he can hold us up and show dead people brought to life for his glory. I look back at 2.8 and 9 here in Ephesians. Familiar passage. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Where does faith come from? With grace, it's a gift of God. Even our faith is a gift of God. Acts 3.16 says that our faith comes from Jesus. Philippians 1.29 says that belief comes from God. Acts 11.18 says repentance comes from God. 
Our ability to respond in any way is only because God gives us that ability. Salvation is totally and completely granted by God apart from anything that we do on our own. Even uh, Lydia in Acts chapter 16, it says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message. God opens our hearts so that we can respond out of his love. So what exactly happens to someone who's born again, someone who's been made alive? What, what exactly is a Christian? Well, first of all, a Christian understands certain things because God opens our eyes and our hearts to be able to understand where we previously didn't have that ability. A, a Christian is someone who understands that God has opened his eyes to see his own deadness and his sinfulness. He understands the penalty of his condition and he comes to God broken and humbled as a result. A Christian understands that Jesus is the Son of God and he came to earth to live a perfect life and that we trade places with Jesus. That we get the benefit of his perfect life and he gets the death of our sinful life. A Christian understands that God looks at Jesus on the cross and pours out his wrath on him as if he lived our lives and he looks at us and pours out his blessing on us as if we lived Jesus' life. But it's more than just understanding these things. A Christian is given a new heart. Ezekiel 36 says that God removes the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. He takes out that heart that, heart that is hard and resistant and in rebellion to God and wants nothing to do with God and he puts in a heart of flesh that's soft and moldable and, and responsive to God's touch. He gives us a new heart, a heart that can be filled with the Holy Spirit, a heart that now treasures Jesus and the cross more than anything. This new heart longs to please and to glorify Jesus. That's why Jesus when he calls people to follow him, what does he say? Pick up your cross and follow me. Nail your own desires and your own passions, your old heart to the cross and follow me with a new heart. That's why he says in Luke fourteen twenty six, if anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Our love for the Lord should make all other love pale in comparison. And this isn't natural. This isn't a normal response that we're going to have. A natural man considers this foolishness. But we come to this understanding because God changes our heart. He gives us a new heart. You see, you can't become a Christian and stay the same. You don't just add God to your life and say, I'm going to add this in. And, and God changes your life. He becomes your life and it becomes all about him. Does this mean that we live perfectly? No, of course not. Now we have a war waging in us. Before we were saved, we were unable to please God. After we die, we're going to be unable to not please God. But here we are in that middle time, right? If you're, if you're a Christian, and you have two natures. You have the nature of your flesh still, and you have your new heart, and they're at war. And it can be frustrating. It can be debilitating at times, even. But here's how we, here's how we, we have that confirmation, and that we know that, God has changed us. Paul says in Romans 7, he says, but the wishing is present in me. The longing is present in me still to please God. Paul is saying, you know, I, I don't do what I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do, but at the end of the day, I have this deep-rooted desire to do what God wants me to do. I have this, this wishing, this longing to please God. If you're born again, your heart is sensitive to God. When you, when you sin, you're broken in repentance, not because of the consequences or not because you're worried about what somebody at church is going to think about you because you did this. You're broken because you know that you have failed to bring glory to God after he brought you back from the dead. Here's what happens when you're born again. 
the light goes on in your heart where before you saw your life as sports or money or relationships or recreation or maybe even family or you saw your life in all these other contexts. Now the light goes on and all of a sudden, boom, it's clear. Life is about Jesus. The natural man doesn't understand that at all. It doesn't make sense. Suddenly the cross, which looked foolish before, now screams wisdom to you. Suddenly Jesus goes from being maybe at best on the the periphery of life to now he becomes all that life is. The cross becomes majestic and your joy is defined by knowing him, by living for him, by submitting to him. Paul says, to live is Christ. To a Christian, you say to live is Christ. It's just all about knowing him, loving him, serving him, pleasing him, glorifying him. That's what defines the Christian life. It's not merely a decision to believe a fact, but it's a heart treasuring Christ and his glory more than anything else. So when we're born again, it's not just turning over a new leaf. It's not a spiritual experience. It's not, it's not uh, just adding something to your life. But new birth comes from the Spirit of God. Being born again is a new life. So how do we respond to this? Okay, so we were dead, God makes us alive. How do we respond? Well, there's two different categories. If you're a Christian, you've been made alive, and you're going to respond one way. If you're not a Christian, you're still dead. There's another response. Let's look at both of those real quickly. First, if you're a Christian, if we understand that we were dead and that he has made us alive, our first response should be one of total, utter humility and brokenness. We were dead. We deserved his wrath and he just showers his blessings on us. That should just drive us to our knees in total broken humility before God. God, why, why did you do this for me? I don't understand, but I'm humbled and I'm broken over it. God, you've clothed me in the righteousness of Christ. You've buried my sins in the deepest part of the ocean. I don't deserve any of it. I didn't do any of it. I wasn't even smart enough to say I should follow you. You opened my heart. You called me to yourself. I'm humbled before you. Secondly, our response should be grateful joy. You know, you'll never understand the full greatness of God's love to you until you understand the extent of how dead you were. When you understand how far dead you were and how lost you were, then your life can't be anything but joy. Being made alive, being born again, it's the experience of a unique kind of divine love. You know, when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, doesn't that take on a whole different meaning when you understand, I was dead with no ability to respond and God made me alive. Gives a whole new meaning to rejoicing. John Piper says this, the Bible has a clear and devastating word about our souls. The reason it has a clear and devastating word about our souls is so that we will know what we need and dance when God gives it. What do your circumstances matter? God chose you. He brought you back from the dead. What what does it matter what goes on in life? What else could happen that your joy couldn't be sufficient to cover that? So first, we're humble and broken. Second, we have grateful joy. Third, we trust God's sovereignty. Consider this. I've thought a lot about this lately. If God could resolve the biggest, most massive, most debilitating, problematic problem, if I can say that, in my entire life, in that I was dead, I was eternally condemned, I was damned before God. If God could resolve that problem and call me back from the dead and make me alive, why do I stress about any other problem I have in life? 
Anything else that goes on in life would pale in comparison to what God has already done for me. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, Jesus says, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor do they reap or, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried, worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God is sovereign. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's in control. Seek God's glory all over all else. Another way to say this is get over yourself. Don't be so self-focused. Focus on God. He's already resolved the biggest problem that you could ever have. Fourthly, submit to God and allow him to produce good works in your life. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, the Greek word for workmanship has really come to mean masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. He's conforming us. He's changing us. He's making us into the image of Christ. And you may say, you know, I don't feel like God's masterpiece. Well, if you're saved, you're getting there. God's working on you. Here's the good news. You had nothing to do with getting yourself born in the first place. And you're going to have nothing to do with God completing his work in you. You just submit to him and he will do it. Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Fifthly, understanding that we were dead and God's made us alive should actually motivate evangelism. Sounds a little strange. I don't have time to fully develop this today. But consider this, that evangelism, when we understand this, is about proclaiming God's glory. It's not about conversion. If we didn't proclaim God's glory, the rocks would cry out. We have the privilege of being a part of that and proclaiming God's glory. That's what evangelism is about. God told Isaiah and he told Ezekiel, go preach to these people groups. And by the way, they're not going to listen to you, but still go and preach. And he told them that because it wasn't about conversion. It was about proclaiming God's glory. God is sovereign. We respond and we just proclaim his glory. That's what we're called to do. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, if you're not sure, how do you respond to this message? John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Notice, Nicodemus comes, he's a, He's a religious teacher. He notices that Jesus is from God, that Jesus is a great teacher, that he's done all these signs and miracles. He recognizes all these things about Jesus. He's, he's complimenting Jesus even. We know you've come from God. Nicodemus, you'd think, has pretty much got everything right. And Jesus might say, good job, Nicodemus, you're almost there. 
Now, what does is, what is Jesus say? He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, let's just cut to the chase. Nicodemus, you can see all these wonderful things, but if you're not born again, you're not going to heaven. This is an essential issue. Being born again is not an option. Eternity is at stake. At stake. Nicodemus recognized all these great things about Jesus, but Jesus still says, you've got to be born again. You need life. You don't need more religion. You can know more about God. You can even be wowed by God and his miracles. You can admire God even. You can respect God, but at the end of the day, you must be born again. That's what it's about. So how can you be born again? What, what, what do we do? What if you're not saved? So we wrap up today. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 10. Jesus is telling a parable. And he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other, for he, if everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You want to be born again? You want to have a new life? You want to be brought back from the dead? Come to God with a broken spirit and beg for God's mercy. The most powerful word you can say to God is, I give up. I can't do it. Recognize that you're dead, that you can't save yourself. And plead for God's mercy. Recognize that you deserve his wrath. Recognize that Jesus died the the death and paid the penalty that was intended for you. And plead for God's merciful forgiveness. Ask him for a heart that wants to turn from yourself and turn towards God's glory. Tell God that you're going to get off the throne of your life and you want him to be on the throne forever. And guess what? He'll do it. There's a story of a famous actor who was at a uh, function held at someone's home. Everyone was asking him to recite famous pieces and he had an unlimited repertoire and he kept performing these pieces and there was an old preacher in the group and he um, yelled out to the actor and he said, why don't you do the 23rd Psalm? The actor knew the 23rd Psalm but he said, it wouldn't be good for this occasion. But the preacher persisted and said, I really think you should do the 23rd Psalm. So the actor responded saying, okay, I'll do it if you do it. The preacher said, okay, and thought, that's even better. It'll be done twice. The actor began and his intonation was flawless and his diction was masterful and he handled the 23rd Psalm with dignity and grace and beauty from beginning to end. And when he finished, there was applause. And then the old preacher got up And in a gravelly voice, after years of shouting and preaching and without very good diction and weak intonation, he went through the 23rd Psalm. And when he was finished, there wasn't any applause, but there wasn't a dry eye in the room. Tears came down the cheeks of the people. And the actor turned to him and said, Sir, I see the difference. I know the psalm, but you know the shepherd. Well, that's my heart this morning. Not that you just hear the words of God, but that you would know God and honor him as, as God.
God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it's true and it's clear and it's powerful. It works on our hearts. God, I thank you that even while we were dead, you made us alive. God, while we were in rebellion toward you, you called us to yourself. God, we thank you. We love you. We give our lives to you in, in service and in gratitude. I pray this in your name. Amen.